This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Hey everyone, welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Hello and welcome to this week's episode where I am welcoming back Jessica Gust. She was on my podcast when I first started the podcast. She is a pediatric dietitian on Instagram as elementnutrition.kids. I will add that to my show notes. And we are talking about BMI percentiles and body image in our children. Thank you so much for being here today, Jessica. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be back and glad to be chatting with you on this topic. So we actually came up with this idea of having this episode when we recorded the last one. And we both really connected over how we look at body image for children and how the medical community is kind of guilty in how we approach body image with our children. And I know I see it as a pediatrician with my colleagues. I've been guilty of it in the past when I first became a doctor. And as I started to realize more about body image and how we talk to children about their body, I realized that percentiles and BMI and talking about numbers a lot of the times in our in our visits can lead to these issues with body image. So I'm so glad we're doing this today. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's something that all healthcare professionals probably have addressed in a way at some point that they have then learned and wish that they maybe hadn't done in the past or, you know, they, they start to realize what's actually happening with the kids and then they discover kind of a new way of doing things. And, and I think it's just the, the natural progression because it's not, it's not something that we learn about a lot in school. I don't think at least from my perspective. Um, and so I, I think I really had to change my mindset about the whole thing as I started working with kids and seeing how those conversations were really impacting them. Yeah. And in residency, you know, we are, we are told, and also this has happens when we become actually practicing physicians uh, to document and code, right? So we code mm-hmm. overweight, we code obesity, we code BMIs, we are kind of required to do this in sometimes, and not all practices require this, but in my current job, this is one of the things that they review. They look at the numbers and they say, well, did you code it for obesity? Did you code it for overweight? And I say, 
I don't want to code it for that because I don't want to put that label on someone's chart. And they're like, well, look at the numbers. I'm like, well, look at the family history. Look at the body type of the family. I mean, every child is different. Everyone is built differently. And so I don't want to create this sort of labeling system because it really can cause a lot of problems for children and how they look at their bodies. Um, why are you passionate about this topic? I feel like I feel like my passion for this topic has really grown over the years. Um, when I first became a dietitian over 10 years ago, um, one of my first jobs or one of the th first things I did out of, out of my internship was start working very closely with a pediatric clinic. And, um, you know, right out of the gate, I was gung-ho about helping these families and I was teaching them of the food groups and I was helping, trying to, you know, help them make healthy swaps. And I was doing all the things that you just talked about. I was reviewing growth charts with them and I was talking about these things. And, um, you know, I was doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And then over time, I started to notice something in the kids that were coming in to see me. Um, and just as a little background, I would say probably 90 to 95% of the referrals I got at this clinic were referred to me with a diagnosis code of overweight or obesity, just mm -hmm. like you were saying. And part of that is related to insurance things, um, unfortunately, yeah. um, but also because of how doctors are trained and taught as well. So, um, you know, I was getting these referrals for overweight and obesity. And so I was like, okay, this is the issue that, you know, we need to address, we need to talk about. Um, but what I started to notice is, um, and you know, it's not something I, I picked up on right away, but over time I was seeing these kids come in and I remember vividly, um, there, there's been a lot of them, but there's this one girl that I will never get out of my head, but she literally walked in with her mom and they sat down in the chair and she stared immediately at her feet. She did not make eye contact with me. She didn't look at her mom. Um, and I could tell the mom was just really overwhelmed being in the office and she was really afraid of what I was going to say. I think, um, you know, she had been with the pediatrician who, um, I later found out was pretty firm about how, you know, she was really high in her weight, she needed to lose weight and, you know, started talking about all of the things that can happen to people that are, have too much weight on their bodies. And, mm. you know, that's really scary for a child, first of all, but then the shame, I could, you know, just the looking at the feet, it was just like, I just immediately saw the shame in her. Um, and I, it broke my heart. And the mom started crying in that appointment. And she's like, she was blaming herself. She's like, I can't believe I let this happen. And I was like, oh my gosh, something has to change here. And, you know, from that day forward, I really spent a lot of time um, kind of delving into research on, you know, body image and, and how we can help kids who, um, you know, may be identified by the doctor as overweight or obese, how we can actually help them make healthy lifestyle changes without creating the stigma around the number on the scale mm -hmm. or the the, the quote fatness or, you know, whatever the, this feeling is that they're having. Um, and so that was kind of where things really started to change for me. And obviously I'm a mom myself now, and I'm very conscious of how I want to raise my, my own ch child. And I don't ever want, um, negative body image issues happening there either. So, um, I think there's a lot to it, but <laughs> that, that was just a little bit about where my passion kind of has come from just experience of working with, you know, so many kids and just seeing that look on their face when they feel like they've done something wrong and, you know, know, it's their body. They shouldn't feel that way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I've had so many situations also where I have talked to families about the weight and I've had situations where the parents are upset that I'm not calling the child overweight, that they're upset yeah. at me for saying, well, you need to put the, put the rules down. And I say, I was like, 
I am saying that we need to work on some things to create good lifestyle choices, but I am not putting this child on a diet and saying that we need to be a certain weight by a certain time frame because that is where we fail, right? When we try to create an expectation that you're going to lose 20 pounds by a month and you don't lose 20 pounds in a month, you're going to feel like a failure when you're not a failure because that's Mm -hmm. not how weight loss works, right? So I tell families I've had it and that's what makes me actually more upset when the parents are kind of against me and that they're like, well, you need to, you're the doctor. You need to say that they can't have the snacks and they can't do this. I'm like, I agree that there needs to be some limitations, but you know, we'll get, I know we're going to get into more of your tips. Um, but there needs to be understanding that we're not looking at food as a reward. We're not looking food as labels. We're not looking at it like this. We're just trying to create a better lifestyle so that we can have more energy. We can sleep better so that we'll get to the weight that we're meant to have. And I I always talk about it like that because I'm like, you cannot expect to be a size two if that's not what your body habitus is. And vice versa. I know children who are on the other end of the spectrum who are in the lower percentiles who want to be more curvaceous, who want to be on the higher percentiles, and they just can't gain the weight. So that's a personal experience also in that I was always, my BMI was always labeled as underweight. So my whole life, I was told that I'm too skinny. Why, why do you exercise? Why do you eat healthy? You can have junk food because you're skinny. And in, this is a real problem because regardless of what a person looks like in terms of the numbers and you know the scale that we're looking at, it is about how we look at food as a as a thing that sustains us and how we view our body image whatever that body type is right so whether you're super thin whether you are on the higher percentiles whatever that is i have seen children on both ends of the spectrum i've seen children even on the middle like 50th percentile when and we'll get into percentiles in a bit and they are not happy with their body so it really it's a really a conversation of understanding that regardless of where you are on a curve or where you are in that number on the scale, body image issues happen regardless. And I think it's important that we understand that and really creating a healthy relationship with food that's minimal pressure, that's, you know, really just kind of embracing food as a thing that sustains us versus, um, you know, a negative or positive thing. Absolutely. And and that pretty much touched right there on, you know, what body image is and, and just that whole mental component too. Yeah. So elaborate more, like what would you say body image is in your opinion? Um, you know, when you describe it to your, you know, your clients uh, or how you view it in your own uh, mind. I think it's all about how uh, we feel about ourselves and what our mind tells us about our body. So just like you were saying a few minutes ago, our body image doesn't necessarily reflect the outward appearance or the actual size. It's more about that mental component because we know that there are people who are in very, you know, what what people consider thin bodies who have a very negative body image. And there's people in large bodies that have a very good body image. So mm-hmm. body image has very little to do with the actual way the body looks and and more to do with the mindset around it, how we feel about ourselves, how we see ourselves. And I think a lot of that develops over time by what we're exposed to, um, who we're around, um, what people are telling us. And that's just one of the reasons why I feel like how we're talking to families and kids about their size in the medical setting and the healthcare setting, or even in our own homes with our kids is so important because they develop these thoughts over time based on what they're kind of exposed to. And of course, you know, there's so many outside influences now, media, um, social media, all of those things that, you know, really can affect that in kids. As a nutritionist, what are your thoughts about percentiles in general? Like when do you find them useful? When do you 
think that there are, you know, have limitations? What are your thoughts on them overall? So I actually, um, I use percentiles all the time. Um, So I am not against using the percentile charts. Um, I just don't use them as a talking point with with kids. I use them more as an assessment tool. So I think... And, and, and obviously that's what they're intended for. They're intended to be used as more of a tracking or thing that you can use along with other factors to look at the whole picture. They're not supposed to be this, um, you know, all in, all encompassing. You look at the chart and this is exactly what's happening and there, there's a problem because it's there. You have to look at it and look at trends over time. So, um, pretty much whenever, and, and I've, I've come from a combination of settings, the, the community setting where I'm, you know, working with families on an outpatient level or like in an office doing counseling and also from a more clinical uh, setting as well. So working with kids that have specific health concerns. And so we do have to use those percentiles, those charts as a way to track change, but I don't necessarily think it's something that we should be talking about to children or in front of children as much as possible. So um, just to give you an, an example of kind of how I use it, um, when I'm when I'm working with someone, I might be looking at, um, you know, their weight and their height. I might be plotting it on the graph. And what I'm usually looking for is where those plots look over a period of time. So I want to look at many plots and whether they're in a high percentile or a low percentile, I'm more looking for how they're tracking. Are they consistently in that percentile, whether it's higher or lower, um, or is it jumping all over? So I have seen some situations where, you know, kids will come to me and I will look at their past weights and heights and where they are now, and I'll see like a very sharp upward spike in the weight, for example. Um, and so what I'm going to do next is I'm going to try and figure out what was happening in the home setting or in their life that might have caused that spike. So I'm not going to just say, oh, the, you know, the spike went up. They're now in a high percentile. They're overweight and obese. There's a problem. I want to figure out why that happens. Um, and I want to make sure that it is, in fact, you know, accurate, that those plots were right, that those weights were, were correct. Um, so you want to look at more of a big picture thing, look at trends over time. And same when kids are lower. So if they're in a lower percentile, a lot of parents are like, oh, my, my child's only in the fifth percentile. Um, can you help me get them to gain weight? And I'm like, well, you know what? They've been in the fifth percentile for quite a while. There, there's not necessarily something wrong with that. Um, if they're, you know, getting enough nutrition and they're eating, you know, what they need for their own growth, if their height is tracking okay. Um, so I like to look at both weight and height, look at consistency of the curve um, and use that information along with what I talk to the families about to assess the overall picture. Um, Versus just saying, oh, it's high or it's it's low, it's a problem. So that's kind of how I use the percentiles. And same with me. And I know some pediatricians don't. And I, I can't speak for every pediatrician. I just can only speak to myself and what I would hope mo- more pediatricians would use the percentiles for. That it really should be, like you said, a trend uh you know, tracking trends versus saying, okay, so you're the 90th and that's too high because that could be where they've been trending. And if they're coasting on the 90th and not going out of proportion or jumping off the charts or jumping too low, I'm happy with that. And I tell families that if they're nice on the 90, on the 90th and they, you know, are doing a well-rounded diet and they're doing exercise and doing everything, I'm okay. I don't need you to make any changes because they've been 90th for their whole childhood. Uh, but it becomes an issue when 
you know, medically speaking, we look at percentiles also for the trends and for severe jumps to make sure we're not missing anything that is medical, right? Like thyroid disorders, um, you know, celiac disease, different things that can cause us to see drops in the drops or fluctuations, um, increases in the growth chart. So we really should be looking at trends. I also, even from a young age, like I'm talking even from infancy, I don't actually report percentiles. And I, I'm really big that I actually think a lot of this can start early Mm -hmm. um, with how parents perceive the percentiles, because as an infant, we think that higher percentiles are better, right? Right. Puppy babies are cuter, quote unquote. But then what happens when they become children, and then they're in the higher percentiles, all of a sudden, there's this cultural shift. And it really bothers me, actually, because it really shouldn't be like that. We all, like I said earlier, we're all built differently. So I, I actually never report percentiles unless a parent wants to hear it. And then I always say, what I want to tell you is how your child has grown since the last visit. So since the last visit, your child grew two inches and gained two and a half pounds. I'm very happy with this growth trending beautifully. And I tell my families why I don't like percentiles because I have seen the disappointment on you know, new parents' faces when their nine-month-old comes in and is on the 40th percentile. And that's amazing if they've always been on the 40th. And they're like, well, how do I get them to be, you know, on the 80th? I'm like, that's not how this works. It's not a competition. Um, Just to kind of go over percentiles for anyone who's not familiar and who's listening, when you say that someone's on the 40th percentile, and we have growth curves for men or for, sorry, boys and females, and then there's also specialized growth curves for things like, for example, Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. But just say you say your boy is on the 40th percentile. That means compared to boys of his age, he is weighing more than 40% of them. Growth charts were last revised in the United States from the CDC in 2000, where they basically surveyed millions of bottle-fed, so formula-fed and breastfed babies to look at the numbers. The problem is, yes, it, it looks at different ethnicities, but my feeling about percentiles is that I'm Indian. Indian babies should have their own percentile graph. Because culturally, we cannot be compared to people who are not Indian. We're different. And I, I can't stress this enough that even though they got so much data from all over, it's really hard because I see so many Indian babies that come into my office or a- even Asian babies who come in that are lower percentiles. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, why am I being told that I'm the fifth percentile when I'm healthy, like you said, right? right. And so I think it's important that we understand, like, like we talked about, that genetics play a huge, huge effect on, on our body build and how we gain weight and how we, you know, trend on curves. And that the percentiles should be looked at with a grain of salt that, yes, we are going to look at trends. You said it perfectly. If a child is on the fifth percentile and developing well and, you know, eating variety of different things and exploring new things, that's awesome. You don't need to do any supplements. You don't need to do anything differently. But it is a conversation with your pediatrician on, hey, where are we at right now? Where were we at last time? And I kind of encourage families to start looking at that. Look at what you gained or what you trended versus where you're at in terms compared to other people. Yes, absolutely. And and we know that, um, you know, the the percentile ranges, even things like BMI, um, they're, they're not always a, um, a great... Uh, well, we know that they're not, a, we, we know the BMI is not the best tool in general anyway, um, but there's a lot of different, um, you know, cultures that it absolutely is off for because it's just, yes. it just wasn't intended for that. And, and, and you're right. I really think there, there probably should be charts for <laughs> a variety of different things and not just like uh, putting everybody onto to one chart because people were made, their genetics, their, their, their backgrounds, that they're, they're made to be different shapes and sizes. And, um, and you're right. It, it 
often um, is is underrepresented for, like you were mentioning, um, Indian and, and Asian children as well um, as others. I mean, I, I could list a, a ton of a ton Crimes. of different mm-hmm. <laughs> that I've seen, and on both ends. So, like for for you, I think you're mentioning you know, the smaller side, but also on the, on the larger side of things too, in kids that are otherwise very healthy, but tracking higher um, and they get the stigma and, and it's, it's, it, it almost seems like it's not fair. So um, I, I agree. You got to look at the whole picture and look at more of trends. And, and that's really what I think health healthcare providers need to be focusing on. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just 2 minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with factor meals because they're ready in two minutes. No shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious factor meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I appreciate you saying that because it is a huge problem I see. And like I said, at the beginning of this episode where, you know, we're kind of asked because of insurance reimbursement and whatnot to code certain things, because yes, it does, um, you know, for the insurance company purposes that we have to, um, but it's, it's okay to code it, but it's just important of how we discuss these words in front of our children. And like I said earlier, in front of the parents when the children are younger, where they may not be, you know, they may be toddlers that are not understanding what we're talking about, because I want parents to also go into, you know, the eating ages and all of this with less anxiety and body positivity and body image awareness also, right? Because in the toddler years, how we approach feeding for our children can also be a reflection of our insecurities, right? So if we were Mm -hmm. told that we were too big or larger or too thin, and then when we're trying to feed our child, it subconsciously can cause difficulties with food um, and how we feed our children. So that is why I think it's so important that we speak about this 
in terms of going downstream, you know, into that infancy age, talking about trends and talking about, you know, BMI is something that's done after two. So I'm happy that's not even discussed at before two. I don't even like touching BMI. Yeah. I mean, Marian is considered <laughs> under, is the lowest BMI because he's tall like mom and dad mm-hmm. and he's super lean. Mm-hmm. And my colleague who takes care of him, um, I went and he was like, so his BMI is really low. And I looked at him and I was like, are you kidding me right now? I'm like, do you see me? And have you seen my husband? Like we are tall, tall, tall and super lean. And I, my son is going to be lean too, you know? So it's so BMI is such a, you know, I, I don't like using it. Like you said, um, we calculate it by looking at your um, weight in kilograms divided by meters squared, but it really is not a good, good gauge in many, many children. And like you said, it does not take into consideration um, certain ethnic populations. And I am very fortunate that in my practice, I take care of a very diverse population. And so I see this firsthand. I see the the medical bias that's done with the BMI and from a young age and how it really is disproportionately affecting certain racial um, groups. And so I'm happy that you bring that up because it is a huge problem that the medical community eventually needs to address. Yeah, it's tough. And and not only that, but, you know, it really, it does not take it, not only the different um, ethnic communities, but it doesn't even take into account even within that, like your actual body composition, which is mm-hmm. probably the biggest issue in fly. I mean, you, you can look at somebody and you have no idea what their health is by by the way that they look. I mean, it doesn't account for bone mass. It doesn't account for muscle mass. It doesn't differentiate between muscle and fat. So, I mean, it's really not telling you anything about health because we know that there, I, I mean, I've seen it myself. I, I'll have somebody, a, a child referred to me because they have a, a BMI indicating obesity or overweight and they'll come and I'll review with the parents what they're eating and, and they're eating wonderfully and they're playing sports. I specifically remember a kid one time that was a soccer player and, and he, he was a solid kid. And I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> this is not, this is not a, a, a BMI problem here. I mean, it's like, it's crazy that we're labeling them with these numbers when, you know, it's, it just, it really doesn't give you a good indicator of, of body composition at all. Yeah. And I love using that word solid. Um, I use that word um, commonly because I, to me, it's a positive word also. It's this child who's truly just a very solid kid, very solid toddler. And Mm -hmm. usually I see one of the parents or both parents, uh, similar body habitus, but yeah. And I, again, this is why this conversation is so important for people to hear, especially, you know, new parents that, you know, uh, may have been told in their childhood that they were overweight or, you know, underweight or whatever. Um, cause I really want to, you know, remove that stigma of looking at the scale and looking at percentiles and looking at BMI as what defines our health. Um, And so you do agree that percentiles in some ways maybe can impact body image from a young age or what do you think about that? I mean, I think they can impact body image if they're being used as a discussion with kids. I think that Mm -hmm. as healthcare providers, we can absolutely use percentiles and not have it impact body image if we know what our role is and what their role, their role is, the the percentiles role in our assessment. So I think that it doesn't have to impact it, but I think it can because it ends up being a talking point. And, And primarily in my 
experience, it's more the BMI talk that becomes mm-hmm. an issue because BMI seems to be what gets focused on more, whether it's a low BMI or a high BMI, because I've worked with kids that are um, deemed underweight as well. And they have a lot of, um, you know, self self-conscious feelings about how skinny their legs are or, or how they get teased at school because they're so thin or so just like you were saying, it, it's not something that um, is just in kids that are on the higher end. It can be the lower end or the higher end, but that comes from, you know, it, it comes from talking about it. And so if, if we're not addressing it with families, if we're not saying, Hey, you know, your kid is, you know, overweight based on these charts, then I, I don't think it's an issue. But I, I think where it becomes a body image issue is when it's constantly brought up and it's used as this negative point that brings about shame in kids. And, and that's what they feel when we address it in a negative light. That is such a great way of putting it. So obviously, we know that food is some way related to body image. Why is it important to have a healthy relationship with food? And do you feel like you see a lot of this, um, you know, body image issues and how we consume food um, issues happen in children? I do. And you know what? A lot of this, um, as we touched on, kind of goes back to how parents were raised around food. I mean, we have parents that were overly restricted. And so then they learn to restrict their kids or, you know, the opposite. They have this had this situation where they could just have whatever they wanted all the time. And so then they are like that with their kids. And then that can lead to other issues. But I think that, um, you know, part of that having a healthy relationship comes to a how we talk about food um, and how we address it with our kids. So one thing that I see a lot, um, because I do commonly work with kids that are referred again on the higher end of the weight scale, um, you know, parents get that fear because they're like, oh, my kid's high, which means I have to be higher on the policing side. I have to police mm. everything they're eating. Um, they'll, and I just had this actually happen recently with a client and they were, you know, portioning out their food and they were saying, you know, you, you know, can't not letting the kid, the child have more of something because, you know, it was too many carbohydrates or, um, you know, this, there's too much fat in that, or we have to cut out all of this or all of that. And that's when I think it really becomes an issue because then they start associating those negative feelings with their weight, with specific foods. And then those specific specific foods create all of these other issues that carry on into adulthood. And then a lot of those kids end up, you know, going the opposite way when they get somewhere like college and then they overeat on all those foods. So we have to really find a a good balance. And what I think is important from my perspective as a dietitian is helping parents understand how they can help their kids um, eat nutrition, a variety of nutritious food, which includes all foods, um, develop that healthy relationship and still maintain a healthy lifestyle. So I, there's, there's a lot of steps to it um, that, I, that I go through when I work with families. Um, and it's not just, you know, a one size fits all type thing. Um, but it really, I think, comes back to, you know, how the parents are reacting to and addressing food in the home. Um, and a lot of that, you know, can only be positive if, if they're, if they're educated on how to do it, because, you know, as parents, we don't, just there's no manual unless someone helps you teaches you so it it can be it can be a tough situation with the food and I know there are probably like you said a lot of steps but what are some maybe a few steps that we can do to create this healthy relationship with food maybe some of your most popular tips um, when parents are trying to approach healthier eating um, for a a lifestyle you know a positive lifestyle Mm -hmm. yeah well I am pretty 
pretty consistent with helping parents try and get their kids on a good meal schedule. That's usually one of my first steps, um, you know, aside from all of the other assessment things that I do. Um, but I think it's really important that parents learn what kind of a, a normal schedule looks like because I, I've experienced often, um, you know, that, you know, kids say, kid says, I'm hungry. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. let's, let's eat. And they're just eating all the time throughout the day and they're constantly snacking. Um, and I find when that happens, they tend to be eating less at meals and more of kind of those snacky foods in the middle of the day that may or may not be as nutrient dense. Um, and so some of those things can really add up too. Um, I think parents um, not having the uh, good versus bad mentality when it comes to food, I think parents want to have rules. They want to learn how they can give their kids rules. But that ends up being hard to do sometimes because it ends up being something like, oh, this has sugar. This is bad. This is a vegetable. This is good. But mm-hmm. in reality, we want to teach our kids that, you know, foods are kind of on a, a level playing field. There's some that we maybe eat more often than others. Um, and then the parents really have to um, kind of help them fit all of those into their meal schedule. Um, and then, of course, um, you've probably heard me talk about this a lot of times, as, you know, maybe some people listening have too, um, the the division of responsibility and feeding uh, by Ellen Satter. It's something that a lot of pediatric dietitians teach and use in their practice. Um, and that basically means, you know, it's the parent's job to provide the food and to, to decide when it's served, um, and that includes like the time of day, the location, but it's up to the child to ultimately decide if they're going to eat it and how much. So um, I like to teach that to parents so that they can really um, use that concept in their home along with the the meal schedule and kind of the not using that good versus bad mentality so that they can balance meals, they can um, help their kids really develop that healthy relationship. And, and part of doing that is by letting the child be into control of how much they're eating. Because we know when we start restricting or limiting portions, um, it ends up backfiring because a lot of times we'll see kids sneaking food or we'll see them overeating when they have an opportunity. Um, and that's not something we want to teach them to do either. So we want them to really learn to listen to their hunger and full cues um, and be in control of the um, the how much when it comes to the food on their plate. So I would say those are some of the kind of initial basic principles that I teach over and over. Um, and, and of course, like I mentioned, there's a few more steps in there and more details, but those are kind of some some basics that I think are really important when it comes to a healthy relationship. That is great. And about the snacking, right? I think that's a huge thing. I saw in the pandemic, um, you, were, you were mentioning earlier, like blips in the in the growth curve. I saw a lot of my patients, you know, go up significantly in their weight because in the pandemic, they were home a lot mm-hmm. and they were bored or they had no physical activity or less physical activity than Sorry. they normally did. And so I saw huge spikes in, in weight. And it was it was it was good that the parents understood what was happening, right? They said, okay, well, you know, we recognize this. And I'm like, yeah, it's not, I'm not guilting you. I'm not shaming you. This is, I'm happy you understand. I think this is important that we try to make some changes and they obviously will. Um, But what about those situations that I commonly do see too, where we have the children who are maybe on the larger end of the percentiles and who are maybe over snacking or eating larger volumes, I don't want us to put them on a diet per se, but mm-hmm. how do we slowly begin to teach them about hunger cues? Like, how do you even approach that when their bodies are used to eating higher volumes? Mm-hmm. Well, how I approach it 
varies a little bit based on the age, uh, because obviously for a younger child, um, it's going to be a little bit different than an older child who might be a little bit more independent. But um, the first step is getting them eating consistently. So if Mm -hmm. they're snacking, snacking throughout the day, that's part of the problem. Um, So I like to move most kids to a three meal, two to three snack schedule um, where there's good spacing. So it allows them to develop an appetite between meals, but it's not so long that they're so hungry that they, you know, just want to, you know, binge on everything that's in front of them. Um, so that's the first step. And then also I like to talk with parents about what's actually being served at the meals. So um, as a dietitian, I obviously teach nutrition. I, I go over the food groups. I talk about foods that are more satiating, meaning more filling, the ones that stay with you longer. Um, those are going to be foods that contain protein and fats, particularly um, also fiber. So if you have food that has more fiber versus more refined grains, um, it all has to do with how your body digests food and how long it takes for food to kind of pass through your body. So um, when I see kids, and, and I see this a lot in kids that are on the picky end too, um, they're eating a lot of refined carbs. They're not really into a lot of protein-rich foods um, or um, sometimes even some of the fat-rich foods they won't eat. They are hungry faster, so they're constantly snacking. But it's it's almost like this empty snacking because it doesn't stay long. So one of the things that I like to talk about is um, what's actually being served at the meal. So I like to talk with parents and make sure that they're actually providing foods that are satiating so that they feel full. Um, because a lot of times what I'll see is kids that are on um, the, the higher end of the weight charts, parents will want to reduce the volume so much or they'll want to cut back on the fat or they'll want to cut back on, on um, specific protein-rich foods because they're afraid those are the ones that are going to like impact their weight. Um, but in the reality, when they do that, um, the, the kids get hungry faster and then it's almost like they're eating more volume. So um, I like to talk with parents about how they're actually balancing the plate, making sure there's a protein-rich food, um, there's some fat there. Um, I, I do like to talk with them about the difference between fiber and refined grains because that helps with that full factor as well. Um, but I find that, you know, if there are kids that are overly snacking or where parents feel they are overeating, um, sometimes that can come down to the actual types of food on their plate. Um, because, you know, if there's a food that doesn't fill you up, you're going to eat a lot more of it than if you have a more filling meal on your plate. Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) 
Well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell, Laughing in the Face of Motherhood, wherever you listen to podcasts. Those are great tips. I really appreciate that because I think it's so important, like we said earlier, to create this relationship of, hey, this is a good, this is good food. We want to still incorporate all types of food. And you said that you're incorporating um, different, you know, satiating foods and not really eliminating certain things per se, right? Like they can still have different parts of the food group, but maybe not every meal. Yeah. I mean, I want, I want parents, no matter where their kid's weight is, whether they have a lower weight child um, a, a child that they're afraid that's on the higher end of the way or, or all children, really, you know, it doesn't matter really what their weight is. You still want to have a good breakdown of food on their plate. So I like to see parents have a fat and or a protein source at meal, um, a carbohydrate and a fruit and a vegetable if possible, as many meals as possible. So I like to see a variety of food groups on the plate um, each meal. I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect either. I don't have a vegetable for my child at every single meal. It's just not realistic. But the the more variety you can serve, um, the, the more likelihood that you're going to be hitting those key nutrients that they need. And um, those fat and proteins are really going to provide a little bit more satiety. So um, yeah, that's that's true regardless of weight. Um, but I just find that a lot of times when parents are concerned about their their kids' weight, they feel like they need to um, eliminate certain foods, particularly ones that might be higher in fat. Um, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, for kids that are lower weight, parents are wanting to like load up on the fats. Mm-hmm. And and you know sometimes that's needed. I do help parents learn how they can increase you know the the caloric density of meals if needed. Um, but we also don't want to be like you know forcing these super high fat. <laughs> meals down our kids' throats either just because their weight is on the lower end. So um, how we approach the meal needs to be, you know, very, very neutral. As the parent, we provide the food and then they they kind of decide the rest. But um, the composition and the breakdown is very important. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to add too, regardless of the child's weight, um, you know, a lot of times parents are um, like, you know, okay, I'm going to cut out all chocolate. I'm going to cut out all sweets. I'm Mm going to cut out all juice. And I actually find that backfires most of the time. Um, I do want to encourage, you know, if, if we're, we're dealing with kids that are on the higher end of the weight range, particularly if we're trying to cut, reduce some of the added sugars, cutting back on juices and sodas and things like that obviously is a good idea. But when you go uh, from them having it all the time to saying, I'm going to cut it all out. Um, It can be very confusing to the child. And then that's almost what they want more. So Mm -hmm. a better approach is to work with them on how it can be included throughout the week, but with a little bit more limits and boundaries versus just, you know, you know, I've had kids that can just go to the refrigerator and pour a glass of soda whenever they want. Obviously, that's not part of that schedule and boundaries that parents need to be setting. So that can be an issue. Um, but that doesn't mean they can't ever have soda or they can't ever have juice. And, and I find that that sometimes where that, that line is a little bit fuzzy, you know, parents sometimes want the all or nothing mentality. And, and that's actually kind of a negative thing when it comes to kids. I'm sure you've seen this where the parents are trying to create this, but the child is older and just 
if there is access to sodas or sugar drinks and the family's trying to maybe reduce it mm-hmm. and the child themselves just kind of goes and raids the fridge, yeah. what kind of tip or would you say a parent can do in that situation where is it, is that the time that maybe we re- remove it from the house or how do we approach those situations where boundaries are not being respected by the child? Yeah. Um, it, it's a tough situation. I've, mm-hmm. I've seen that. Um, I don't have a hundred percent, um, straight answer on that because I do tend to change this based on the family that I'm working yes. with. Um, I have, um, with some families, um, had them stop bringing you into the home. Uh, yeah. But that doesn't mean that they stop serving it altogether. So for example, like if they're going out to dinner as a family, um, you know, allowing them to have the, to get the soda or instead of having like a gallon of ice cream in the refrigerator, go out to, to the ice cream store and get an ice cream cone and allow them to do that. Um, so you're not like saying we're not ever having ice cream, but you're limiting how much is in the house. But on the flip side of that, we also know that when all things are eliminated from the house, it still creates this feeling of like desire and obsession on a kid's part. Yes. And when they are put mm-hmm. into the situation where it's available, um, obviously right now with COVID, things are a bit different. But before, like um, uh, things I've seen is, you know, I had a family that, you know, cut everything out and their kid went to, um, I think it was like catechism or, or church and, and there was like a, a cookie table and they pretty much sat there at the table the entire night and ate all the cookies. Um, and obviously that's not creating a good relationship either. So we really want to find a balance between, um, you know, them just having open access and having it all the time um, and also having reasonable access where they're allowed to still have the things that they want and not feel restricted. So um, it is, it's, that's a really good question. And it's one that I don't have a straightforward answer to because it it really changes, I think, based on the situation. Well, I'm so glad we're doing this because as you know, you being a dietitian, it's I'm learning a lot also because I've been doing very similar things, but it's nice to hear because you do this way more than I do. Um, meaning I talk about weight often, but you talk about it in way more detail. So it is nice hearing your opinion because I also find that it is catered to what's happening in the family. What what boundaries are the family the parents actually doing? What is the, you know, the nature of the child. It really is different. I do also recommend the, you know, occasion situation. Like, Hey, if it's a birthday party, we're going, or you're going out to dinner on a Friday or taking, getting takeout, Mm -hmm. then we can bring that into the home. Or I love the idea you mentioned about the ice cream. Mm -hmm. I know that's hard in COVID, but I find that that sometimes needs to happen in some situations, not all. Mm -hmm. Um, because if, you know, if there's just inability to create that boundary and the parents are truly trying hard, Mm -hmm. um, obviously how we approach food is not the only way we can foster a healthy body image. I I know that. What are some other ways that we can kind of create a healthy body image for our children um, as their parents? Well, I think the most powerful way that we can teach our kids anything is through example. Um, and this is something that I work on on a daily basis because, you know, I am I am a woman and I've had my past, you know, issues as well. And I think we all have, um, you know, our own thoughts that we battle with at times. But, you know, I know for me, I want my daughter to have a very positive body image. And so for me, that means trying my best not to make negative comments about myself um, Mm -hmm. or other people, um, which 
making negative comments about other people is not an issue for me, but I think we all have, you know, a tendency to be hard on our own bodies. Um, but, you know, I, I have experienced when, you know, seeing, seeing parents make negative comments about another woman or another man or another person um, and their kids are around and, and they, they pick up on those things. And I believe the research shows that kids start, you know, really identifying differences in bodies at like two to three years of age. And so, you know, as early as possible, starting to, you know, just really make a commitment not to, you know, if you look at yourself in the mirror and, you, and, and you're feeling down, you know, that's normal, but trying not to say, oh, you know, I'm too fat or I'm too skinny or, or I don't like the way this fits because of, you know, this reason or that reason. And um, I, you know, I, I know that's really hard, but it's, I think it's something that's important because how we talk about ourselves um, reflects on how their kids potentially think of themselves because we know our kids look up to us. And, you know, if we're talking negatively about our bodies, they might think, well, gosh, you know, my mom thinks that's negative about herself. I wonder if that's negative about me too. Um, and so I just think that one of the most powerful things that we can do as parents um, or as people in general is to try not to make um, comments about people's shapes or sizes in a you know negative way. I think teaching our kids that all bodies are different and that's what makes people unique and special. I think that's important. Um, I think it's important for kids to be exposed to people of different shapes and sizes and um, you know races, ethnicities, all of that because I think that's how they learn that um, you know difference is normal and it's a good thing. Yeah, and it's what makes us unique and beautiful. And I, I love that way you, you put it. One of the first posts when I joined Instagram of yours that I loved was when you talked about, you know, what we talk about with our children in terms of what they're doing and the awesome things that they've accomplished versus, you know, how they look, right? Yes. The appearances that they have. I remember one of your posts, I was like, this great, this, this account is amazing. This is awesome. <laughs> um, because it's so true. You know, my, my tip would be exactly that, like how we view ourselves, how we view our partner mm -hmm. also, I think is key. You mentioned how we talk about, um, you know, strangers or other people that we may not know personally, mm -hmm. um, but the partner situation. You know, I think sometimes I have seen many times where maybe the if it's a, you know, mom and dad relationship, the father speaking about the mother or even the mother speaking about the father in a certain way, there are instances that we we think that our partner may be a certain way, or we think ourselves ourselves should be a certain way. And the children pick up on that. I am very big on this. And, you know, one of my biggest goals in parenting is teaching parents how to parent themselves before they become parents, <laughs> meaning looking at their insecurities. And I mentioned that earlier in this episode, and a lot of it has to do with body image and whether you're on the higher percentile or lower percentile, it's huge. And I find it really does go gender to gender, meaning um, more so like um, if you have a, just say a father and a son versus a mother and a daughter, we, they tend to look up to the mother, right? So Agreed. if my, if I'm looking, if I have a daughter and I am saying to myself, you know, I'm this and I'm that, my daughter's going to say, well, mom keeps looking at herself like that. Maybe I'm not beautiful enough. And same thing when I see like fathers and sons, you know, I, I do see that often that if a dad is insecure about their body, um, they're going to be more insecure about their son's body because the son is probably gonna have the same body. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's hard to see it. You know, I've seen that, you know, there is a psychology obviously behind all this. And obviously we talk about also the psychology of food, um, binge eating and how we approach food. There is a psychological component. And when you're not happy with the 
body you have, it really affects just every part of your, you know, your life, your relationship with your partner, your relationship with your child, your relationship with food. Um, and so I really, you know, my goal and my hope for all parents is that they can look in themselves in the mirror and be happy with the person that they are as they go through their parenting journey, because it really will help their child feel more confident and remove a lot of those insecurities that can affect the child um, as they grow up. And I think that's such a beautiful part of being a parent in that we learn about who we are and, you know, maybe the things that we need to work on. Yeah. And I think it's good for parents to remember too, that it's a practice. It's something that you have to constantly be working on because nobody's perfect. We're always going to have moments where we have negative feelings about ourselves, And just because you have those negative feelings doesn't necessarily mean you have a negative body image. It that's you know it's normal to have those, but it's just to work on how you are um, displaying those feelings and how you are addressing them and how you're working through them. I think that's that's the important thing. And one of the examples I give about body image that has to do with women is postpartum body image, right? I mean, I know we're not yes. talking about children, but I had posted a post about how I missed my old body. Um, Mm -hmm. meaning when I was, you know, three months postpartum that I missed the things I was able to do. And I had, you know, I had pain now and I got a mixed, a mix of comments. Some of them were like, I totally agree. Many of them were like, you know, we need to be promote postpartum bodies. And, you know, it's, it's important that we recognize that we did, we did something amazing. And I, you know, I said, I was like, the fact that we are saying that it's not okay to feel this way is also part of the problem. Like we should be okay with the mother saying, I miss the body I have. And just the fact that she feels validated in that can help her do whatever she wants to do to whether that means, you know, working out, whatever she wants to do to get the body she wants. And whether that is, it takes you two years to get the body back, whether that means it took you two months, six weeks, I don't care. It's not about what a a race on who got back their body at a certain time. It's really about what the mom wants. It's what the, what makes the mom feel happy. You know, I don't, and so I'm very into that culture too, because we need to talk to each other as women and as mothers in a good body image light too. And that, Hey, if you want to work out and get that, you know, six pack, six pack right away, power to you. If you want to wait a little bit and you still are carrying baby weight two years after power to you, that is your amazing body that you chose. So I believe that the shaming goes both ways, right? I mean, I've seen a lot of people get shamed for getting their postpartum body back. And then also the other way. And I say, you know, if that's what they're choosing to do, let's applaud women for whatever they decide to do. I don't care what they look like. I just want them to be happy and feel happy with the body image that they have. And it really goes down to, like you said, how we look at each other, how we look at ourselves and our children are always watching and they can, even if it's in passing, it's like you said, a work in progress. It's recognizing that maybe next time I maybe won't say that. And even if it happens again, okay, maybe I'll keep working on it. You're right. It's such a work in progress. And it's the beautiful part of being a parent and having children is that we're always changing and, and evolving. Yeah. And, and not beating yourself up about something if, if you realize that, oh, maybe I said something that I shouldn't have, because yeah, I think it's, I think it's very normal for you to miss something that you had in the past, but just because you missed something that you had, doesn't mean you're not thankful for what you have now. So, and and I think, I think it's easy to, to miss that, whether it's, you know, it has to do with a postpartum body or, or even if it's just like, you know, I know there's, there's been times when I've just been totally overwhelmed in motherhood and I'm like, oh man, wasn't it so easy before kids when I could just, you know, sleep and do what I I wanted. Um, But that doesn't mean that, you know, I want to go back there just because, you know, you miss situation. So I think it's, I think it's very normal to, um, you know, think about things in the past and, and sometimes have this, you know, 
missing feeling of it, but not necessarily that it's a bad thing. No, I completely agree, Jessica. I mean, this is such a great conversation and, you know, it's, I think, important, especially as we, like, you know, approach the holidays and, you know, how people, like, are going to be getting it together with families. We could do a whole other episode on, you know, how grandparents approach body image and, <laughs> and the generational differences. But I really want parents to have that confidence, you know, as they, um, you know, as they parent their kids and as the, year, as the years continue. What would be your final message for everyone listening today? I mean, I just, I just like parents to know that, you know, how your kids learn to love food in their bodies starts with you, starts, starts with how you talk about things to how you approach things. And um, ultimately what your kids need is your love and support. And, you know, they don't, they don't need to be feeling, you know, restricted or feeling like they've done something wrong or shame surrounding food or their body. So, you know, just, just parents really focusing on how they can foster that that healthy relationship, um, keep, keep communication positive and, um, just, you know, focusing on how they talk to themselves and their kids. No, this is so great. I agree completely. And I'm so glad that we were able to do this episode in 2020. I know we decided, you know, at some point to do it and I'm just so thankful for you. Uh, and I, again, I think it was such a great conversation. Everyone listening, um, Follow Jessica at elementnutrition.kids. Uh, obviously be attaching that to our um, show notes. And we did have another episode um, earlier on on this podcast called Raising an Intuitive Eater with talking about these principles that we mentioned about, you know, schedules and whatnot, how to do that from an even earlier age um, to create an eater that understands, you know, their fullness cues and their hunger cues. And it was such a great episode. So definitely listen to that if you haven't already. Um, Thanks again, Jessica, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend, comment on my social media and if you're not already follow me at pete's doc talk on instagram love doing this for all of you have a great rest of your week take care talk to you soon If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought provoking experts and friends at Mindful Mama. We know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.